I'm Megan. I'm Tyler. And this is The Office Hours, the podcast where two literature professors analyze the great American story. Hey, Tyler. Hey, Megan. How are you? Good. Excited to be back. We had a little break, and um, today we're getting into season two, episode 18, meaning we've been doing this thing for a long time. It's Take Your Daughter to Work Day today. I know. I'm so excited uh, to see how far we've come, but also there is like way more episodes left in this season. I was like, oh, this must be near the end. And then it was like, oh, wow, Uh, we've got it like five or six more, I think something like I can't remember whether it's 22 or 24 in a season. But um, but that made me excited. I was like, oh, we've got lots more content uh, to go. Um, But whenever I worry we're going to run out of episodes, I'm always like, well, we'll do Parks and Rec next. Right. I mean, come on. And we've got we've got a lot to go. But that is kind of like when you wake up in the middle of the night, you know, when you think it's like five and you're going to have to get up soon. And then it turns yes. out it's two and you have like these extra hours. We've got those extra surprise episodes. It's so, that's the, one of the best feelings in the world to be like, Ooh, more sleep. <laughs> <laughs> totally. A pleasant surprise. Yeah. We're recording. Uh, this is an early morning uh, <laughs> recording session for us. Normally it's like, you know, late afternoon we've done, after hours, you know, an evening recording, but we've never really done early morning as far as I know. And I'm excited about it because I feel like listeners will be able to hear the <laughs> um, levels of caffeine, like slowly enter my bloodstream and hit my brain, much like my students. Like, I feel like my students over the course of the morning can, you know, like witness just how caffeinated I get. Um, you know, anyway, so yeah. So in the uh, middle of the episode, there's like a sudden uptick. Yeah. 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 If I sound like, uh, yeah, a caffeinated monster, I am. So. Okay. Well, Tyler, you clued me in that you might have a contribution to revisions and regrets this week. I do. I really do. Are we, are we in it now? I think we're in it. I think we, I think we're jumping right in. You know, something we do need maybe is like a, a segment music or something. Somebody should send us like revisions and regrets. <laughs> theme song. Oh yeah. People have, don't they call those sound bumps or something? Sound, yeah. I like that. I Where like they do that. like a little thing. Yeah. You just, once you've got the key, you hit on your computer and it does. Yeah. A little thing for the segment. I don't know if we have enough segments for that. <laughs> I don't know that we do it. Well, maybe we should create more. Se- well, we've got, we've got our little intro. We've got our, yeah. We've got our uh, revisions and regrets. We've got our dundies. We've got our dundies. We have a summary that could. We have the summary. (laughs) (laughs) Which lasts 10 seconds. And then we have our final. We've never really established an outro. That is one thing I I never feel. I always feels awkward being like, well, bye. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like maybe we should work on that. But anyway. um, we're really, okay. we like to process and workshop it on the air. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's nice. You know, they get the, the, the listeners get to experience yeah. the process. So, um, okay. So for revisions and regrets, you had told me that there were two things that I said we would return to. The first being, uh, what are my thoughts on Jennifer Aniston? And then the <laughs> second was like, what was the most tangential um, point over the course of the episode? Is that right? Oh, I don't even remember that one. Um, but yeah, just for for context, the Jennifer reason the the reason Jennifer Aniston came up um, was because in the last episode <laughs> that was when Dwight announced that there had been a horrible accident on the highway, <laughs> and they asked 
um, was it anyone we know? And he said, Brad Pitt. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that got us into Brad and Jennifer and uh, felt like you needed to kind of update your thoughts on that old conflict. Well, okay. So I spent, I don't know, maybe three minutes <laughs> on Wikipedia. And uh, so I think that qualifies me to have an opinion <laughs> on this. But what was interesting to me is like, okay, so I remember um, just vaguely, you know, from following popular culture and stuff like that. Like, I certainly remember Jennifer Aniston from Friends, you know, that era. I remember all of the discussion of her haircut and just her kind of like, uh, uh, I don't know, quirky personality or something like that, you know, but um, then, you know, the, the I, I just don't really remember the Brad Pitt years um, until I remember hearing like, oh, he's with Angelina and the rumor was that he had cheated on Jennifer Aniston. But the other thing, and I had forgotten this in my rereading at uh, first, I did not know they were married and they were married for like five years or something like that. Yeah, I did not remember that either. I was like, oh, what? And then, uh, I don't know, Wikipedia, it must be true. They said, you know, there was some narrative about them being like the the kind of Hollywood marriage, like an un, un like an unusual Hollywood marriage because it seemed to be working out. <laughs> uh, so I didn't actually remember that, that there was this kind of idealism around their relationship. Hmm. Um, I Didn't Brad Pitt also date Gwyneth Paltrow too? Um, I kind of remember them being together. Anyway, whatever. Uh, the whole point of this preamble is just to say, I didn't realize they were married. And, and I mean, there was nothing on the Wikipedia to give me enough evidence to know whether or not he cheated on her or not on the set of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, a movie that I did see in the theater. And I remember uh, thinking was okay <laughs> and having no other thoughts about Um and I must confess that at the time I was an Angelina Jolie fan uh, oh, for a few team reasons. Team. I really okay. liked, I really liked the gothy danger, quote unquote, dangerous Angelina Jolie. She <laughs> had tattoos. She was dating this weirdo, Billy Bob Thornton. They were wearing each other's blood and everybody was like, ew, that's weird. And I was like, that's hot. Like, I really yeah, like that. <laughs> you're, you're like, I'm going to find someone whose blood I can wear. <laughs> that's right. And uh, uh, so I had a real crush on Angelina Jolie. And um, so I think for that reason alone, I was like, well, come on, can you blame Brad Pitt? You know, it's not even a choice. Um <laughs> But then Angelina, I also was a fan of Angelina's political work, you know, like I, I had her book, like her UN book and like, you know, um, but I have over the years been sort of like, is she just famous for being famous? Like, is she really in movies? Like, and I guess she is. But anyway, all of this is to say she and Brad both deny there was any cheating. And one thing I liked in the quotes was that Angelina said, I would never be with a guy who cheated on his wife because my dad like cheated on my mom or whatever. And I was like, hmm. And that well, seemed believable yeah. to me. On the other hand, you probably wouldn't want to be the villain in that story. And so, <laughs> um, so, but you're, you're, you're rightly asking yourself, but wait, Tyler, what's your opinion on Jennifer Anderson? <laughs> and <laughs> I have to say like, uh, it was really shitty. It just sounded really shitty the way that um, whether Brad Pitt did it or not, like the way that the narrative was he left her because she didn't want to have children. And mm. then she had to say, of course, I want to have children and I'm going to have children. Um, 
And so I was just reading some of her quotes and I was really impressed by the way she kind of talked about the objectification of her, um, yeah. her body and her reproductive life and all of this. And then, you know, just all of the sexism around pitting women against each other and, and prying into her personal life. Uh, I don't know. She seemed like a cool person, like super into transcendental meditation. I was like, cool, cool, cool. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. Like, she just seems like a person who has a fairly ironic sense of who she is possibly. And I don't know. So also the more we know about Brad Pitt, the more he seems like a real dick bag. Uh, <laughs> and, and what, and I say that saying like, cause I find Brad Pitt like frustratingly attractive. Like I don't want to be attracted to him, but I really want him. <laughs> and it pisses me off. And like, I like him, even though like, I really think he's probably a scumbag in like so many ways, not least of all, like, he's he was like investigated for assaulting his children you know and that was like one reason that he and angelina split up so uh, uh like i'm predisposed now to think angelina or i mean that jennifer is uh blameless in the whole situation all of which is to say kelly was right that if brad pitt yes. was in a car accident it is karma for what he did to nice jennifer. way to bring him back <laughs> so yeah sure um three minutes of internet research really produced a wealth of knowledge, detail, and analysis. I feel like this has turned into a uh, pop culture of the early 2000s podcast. <laughs> I would be here for that podcast. Trust it's like me. a gossip column podcast. Actually, that would be pretty good. We could go weigh in on disputes that are way <laughs> past their time. But, well, we're gonna touch on one today because we get a Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake reference, actually. And I was gonna ask you if you had opinions on the the nip slip, the, uh, what was it? The uh, wardrobe malfunction, remember that? This was referenced in this episode? Oh, it was. Really? Yeah, and the cold, we'll subtle. come back, we'll come back, we'll come back. We'll get to that, we'll get Did to that. Did you have updated thoughts on the Jennifer Aniston of it all? I didn't, just that I... <laughs> I relate so much to Kelly there. I have that same kind of visceral team gen reaction, though I will say that it's not based on the level of research that you did. Um, but I think you're right. It's really interesting. I feel like for her in particular, the sort of speculation and expectations about childbearing are really intense. Like for somebody that she, I think that's the case for women generally and for Hollywood women generally to some extent but there's like this concentrated emotion about Jennifer Aniston and her reproductive possibilities that is interesting but I too of course had one revision and this is that so last time I did not give out a Dundee but in rethinking it I think I should have given one to Stanley mm. and I have two reasons when Michael falsely announced that they were going to get a bonus thousand dollar bonus. Was that right? Yes. Think so, so Stanley immediately called his wife and he was so happy to give her the green light on buying the wallpaper. And I just thought that was really sweet. His, happiness about that and that immediately he went to her for this thing that um she had wanted or that they had wanted together so I thought that was a nice Stanley moment in the office he's so often so 
crabby, like for good, for good reason, but it was nice to see this side of Stanley. The second reason I think Stanley is deserving of an award was the epic fall that he took when Dwight and Michael were throwing around the football and Dwight kind of tackled him and he fell forward <laughs> and he just kept falling. It was this fall that covered like several feet as he kind of slowly went down. And I just thought that was also really strong. So I want to revise my statement that no one deserved to Dundee last week. <laughs> I'm re-listening to the podcast, uh, which I'm trying to do more like closer to our um, episodes. I just had forgotten how much I still love Dwight's speech. <laughs> and I, as I was listening to myself quoting it, I just was chuckling uh, yesterday at the line um, when he's like, uh, the war of work. <laughs> I don't know why. It makes me laugh hearing it. Um, so anyway, yeah, uh, love that. I will say you really did get me thinking about Dwight's speech and how that kind of speech style shows up in different places. And mm. I feel like in workout culture is a big place for that too. You know, where coaches, it's like, um, I don't know. It is that kind of war, like blood alone turns the wheels of history, like sweat alone turns the wheels of history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, that like we are, we are suffering for a larger cause that will, I don't know, save our, not the fatherland, I guess, but it just, it just like, I was, I was thinking about it and I'm, I'm starting to notice echoes of Dwight's speech style in other places. So I will continue to think about you every time I think about speeches. I'm so glad. So glad. Shall we get into the episode? Let's do this. Let's do this. Okay. So our summary, Michael strikes up an unexpected friendship with Toby's five-year-old daughter. Pam takes note of Jim's way with kids. Wow. I think that that summary is so wrong. What do you think? Tell us about it, Tyler. Well, I just, it feels like um, this is a story. I, I don't know. It's like more of a collective episode. It's not about Pam or um, Michael so much yeah. as like, everybody's relationship with children mm -hmm. and um, and if I had to settle on a plot it's not so much Michael's relationship with Toby's daughter as like Michael's um, sort of grappling with his desire to have children in the absence of any yeah. uh, relationship or whatever to yeah um yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't know. That's it's interesting that they narrated it that way. Mm -hmm. It, yeah, I had sort of similar feelings about it, and it kind of got me thinking about the form of summary, and particularly in this mode. You know, like when it's quick summary of a show, and do you kind of do a big overview? Like, this doesn't give us any big overview of the main kind of thing that's happening it right. sort of pulls out a couple of details where it seemed like you know a couple threads of a rich tapestry that is the episode um so it seems like there's it's kind of a different approach in that way I definitely I will say I definitely have feelings about both of these particular plot lines so I am excited to talk about them well where do you want to start where do I want to start? Well, 
you mentioned that the show is about this episode is about everybody's relationship with children. And I feel like I would love to kind of break down people's different approaches to interacting with kids. Yeah. It feels like this is this big move, bringing kids into a situation because it kind of tests out characters, um, their style of being. If I want to think back to John McClure class, testing out their style of being, it reveals characters. This also makes me think of times on say the bachelor when they bring in kids for the contestants to yes. so that they can kind of gather some information about them because it gives them this different very different context you see people in a different context and kind of in a different mode and it can really be revealing that is such a great point also are you watching this season of the bachelor i'm really behind but i'm trying again what about you well i i had kind of sworn off the show as you know mm-hmm. um and I'm back in, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I really do not enjoy the first I don't know. I don't, I like my sweet spot is like between, you know, somewhere in the middle when it's like, they've narrowed down the pool a little bit. I don't like yeah. the early yeah. episode. It's hard when there's so many people and you don't know them and you can't get invested in loving or hating them. So, right. Uh, but, um, but so I've been watching kind of, I'm like jumping in now. And, uh, but anyway, this week, there, they did bring in some kids. Uh, so, so that's why I was like, nice. Um, standard practice. But I love that you say that because yeah, now I'm immediately thinking about how each character reacts differently to these children. And at the same time, how the children are to some extent reflections of their parents or the person mm-hmm. that's taking care of them too. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we kind of work our way from, I feel like the ones that are kind of smallest to the ones that are biggest Great. In, their roles in their interaction. Um, Kelly and Ryan. Yeah. Kelly has that. What did she say to Angela? You know, oh, don't you just love kids? Like she gets that thing where you can see her heart sort of being filled with love and joy and looking at Toby's daughter who is adorable when yes. she walks in she walks into the conference room where Kelly and Angela are setting up and asks if she can help them. <laughs> and Angela, <laughs> Angela tells her, no. do you happen to have a quote up for this? Yeah, no, thanks. We <laughs> have to explain everything. It's probably e- just easier if we do it ourselves. <laughs> I love their Toby's response. All right, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go draw. <laughs> And Kelly says, oh my God, she is so cute. I want to die. Don't you just love kids, Angela? I guess I wouldn't mind a pair of small, well-behaved boys. (laughs) (laughs) And then Kelly, God, I cannot wait to get pregnant and have babies. Ryan's uh, next line, which is in the one-on-one or whatever they call that. Um, Is there a name for that? Interview? I don't know. We tend to call it interview interview um other name for it that i at one point figured out and then forgot again he says kelly and i both agreed that we would just have fun and i'm learning that fun for kelly is getting married and having babies immediately (laughs) with me (laughs) yes so did we establish in the last few episodes that they are in a relationship but they're just quote unquote having fun i remember valentine's day they hooked up but 
uh, I'm forgetting the last couple of episodes. Like, is this the first time we're finding out that they're like kind of together under different ideas? That's a good question. I can't really remember the, the through line well on this, but I feel like it was pretty clear in, you know, when they were both talking to Jim, was that the Valentine or no, that was before Valentine's day, I think where Kelly was talking to Jim about how interested she was in Ryan and (laughs) where she'd say things like um, that she wanted it to be totally serious. Like she wanted a long-term relationship and she wanted to get married and wanted to have babies or whatever, something along those, like that category of relationship. And she was like, don't tell, don't tell Ryan that though. Tell him something like that. I remember. Yes, yes, yes. And Ryan was clear in his intention. So (laughs) we see Um, playing out now. So basically like what, what, what is revealed here, I guess, is kind of what we know about Ryan, which is like, he's commitment phobic and, (laughs) uh, I guess he wants to be like kind of just a player. Is that a concept? I don't know, but that doesn't, I don't know. He's just like, like he's like a more disaffected Jim. He's Jim without sentimentality or romance, right? Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And then um, maybe, I don't know, but like he he wants to be a cool guy. And then Kelly, it's almost as if Ryan and Kelly are kind of like the most, the purest normative, femininity and masculinity in a way that like or the way our what'd you say that's a great point just like the way that our culture want or you know norm presents normative gender roles that like you know men are supposed to be or tend to be or whatever you know kind of commitment folk straight men are yeah phobic no one really want kids blah 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 and women can't wait to get pregnant and have babies or something like that yeah yeah but Angela, I mean, it is, I, Angela's fascinating in this episode. She wants a, a strong-armed daddy um, in Dwight. And so it's just interesting how much discipline is what she desires in children. So a pair of small, well-behaved boys. What strikes me about that is that, you know, it's like, but they will grow up. So they're yeah. not going to be small forever. Like, I don't know, there's something similar to her kind of, what is it like that she loves that poster with the babies uh holding the <laughs> instruments and stuff like that so she likes cuteness yeah. as an aesthetic like she and she wants to i don't know i feel like i've met people like that where it's like the cuteness is somehow creepy <laughs> <laughs> because it's like it's fixed in time and it's like a something you control mm-hmm. i don't know yeah. i'm not I think that thing of control, right, is really big here. That I did the pair of small, well-behaved boys. They're like the the kind of confining them in space, determining their size. Yeah, the well-behaved. Because I think the thing about having kids is that it's so unpredictable, and you just fundamentally do not know what you're going to get or how it's going to play out. But it seems like she has such like this very stiff expectation of what they would turn out to be and right. maybe her hopes for Dwight and her hopes for um, a potential father is that they would help, you know, kind of constrict the children into those particular confines. Yeah. And it's interesting. She won't let the child in be involved in the, 
thing. I don't know if you had thoughts. On, would you have let the, the child be part of the party planning uh, committee or no? 100%. <laughs> I feel like most people would, isn't it? <laughs> kind of standard that you are kind to children and her, her purpose there <laughs> is not, I think we all know, right? Like the girl coming in, the purpose is not that she will actually be helpful. Right. And that she will actually make a difference, but that she gets to have the enjoyment of feeling like she's participating and she's helping and she gets to learn a lesson about being helpful and that you should contribute and all of that. So Angela, it's so funny because it's, it's so true and so straightforward that she's not going to be really helpful and they are going to have to just tell her what to do and it'll take more time, but it's a, it's a rough statement. I mean, because I like being the contrarian on the podcast, you know, there's this part of me that wants to defend Angela. Yes, honest, please. Uh, but I, uh, but I actually, you know, I totally agree with you, and I can't. I find Angela so uh, detestable in many ways. <laughs> um, and again, I think that actress is just She's astounding. So it's hard for me to imagine her playing any other role. Like, it, she uh-huh. seems so like the character and so it's really brilliant but uh yeah it's also it's a great scene because it's like she takes the parties as a reflection of her self and so anything that would either take control or take the you know take it away from her as a reflection of her is bad and must be forestalled but then also anything that would ruin it potentially or bring chaos in, you know mm-hmm. um, but like also it's such small stakes it's a fucking office party right <laughs> yeah. like it's it's, it's should not be lower and that's also something i find really interesting about angela is like it doesn't matter the size of the thing you know it's it's still um you know it must be quote unquote perfect in the way that she deems which is why she doesn't like which color on uh on um uh <laughs> green yeah, that's right. Doesn't she say it's a whorish color on? Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, who who does she say that to? I'm trying to remember. Uh, Phyllis. Phyllis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who's wearing a green sweater? Um, okay. What about what's our next character? Is I think our next one is Dwight. Yeah. Uh, because we get all this <laughs> discussion then between Dwight and Angela and the kind of tension. You know, she tells him that her father was a very strict disciplinarian and that's what she is also looking for in a mate. Is that what she says? What's the right. line she says? Um, but so she kind of encouraged and there, it connects back to his speech and the sort of dictatorial style, which is so attractive to her, but he has to kind of get better at it. And yeah. There's a moment when she overhears him telling uh, telling Angela's kid that he is like a worthless little punk or something. Um, I don't have the, the quote up for that, but then that's like super hot to Angela. Yeah, yeah. I think there's this big thing too about watching, I think this is particularly the case of women watching men with children because men are less expected you know, to be nurturing and to be the caretaker. So there's this thing about hot dads or about it being like really attractive to see a man 
care about children yeah. or can be fatherly to children in the right way. And usually that image is in kind of being sweet to them, but I sort of love it how in Angela it's being <laughs> cruel. <laughs> That's a great point. Like it's the same dynamic, but with a different um, emotional uh, I don't know, tenor to it or something, you know, it's like, yeah, it's still about watching and a set and like being appreciative of the kind of father you would be or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the kind that she wants is like <laughs> going to be a dick uh, to mm -hmm. these kids. I mean, it is delightful to see Dwight uh, cut that kid down to size because, <laughs> yes. because he is obnoxious. Yeah. Um, it earned it. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, it's really funny to see, you know, a child essentially do what Jim does uh, to Dwight. Um, and so. Oh my gosh, that's such a good point. I had not thought about the Trolling him as Mr. Poop. And, uh, but yeah, Dwight's initial attempt is to like use reason. He's like, you know, uh, you'll call me, you know, it, it's very disrespectful. He's like very calm and reasonable. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Which does not work. <laughs> yeah. So he actually has to adapt. Right. To kind of assert some control over this particular kid and to fit into Angela's expectation of what he should be. But it starts off, there's the earlier part where he is, he's got a whole setup in the conference room with corn husk dolls. Yes. With his book of German folk tales. Yep. He's got that big old book so what what did you think about dwight's interaction with the kids in that conference room scene well i'm i'm sending you an image i'd oh, like you to yes. check out here if you can this is uh <laughs> strumwell strumwell peter strumwell peter <laughs> strumwell peter strumwell anyway are you seeing it? Well, yeah. Should I describe this image? Yeah, describe. <laughs> okay. So, oh gosh. It's a white sort of doll looking face. And all the surroundings are just, I don't know, frightening. So the hands have these really long sort of spikes. It, it's sort of Edward Scissorhandsy. So they've got these really long kind of stick spikes growing off of the hands. He or she, I, I can't really tell. This, this person is wearing, it's got Peter. It's kind of like a guy. Um, he's wearing this like, how do you describe this? Is it a tunic? Like a belted orange? Yeah, yeah that sounds right. And then green tights that sort of go down over the shoes and a big blonde kind of afro. Um, like just the, the hair is all kind of straight out and really big. I'd say, I'd say it goes like 18 inches off the, off the head. It's, and it's on a stage with scissors and combs. Yeah. 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 It's terrifying. <laughs> it is terrifying. And Dwight and says, uh, well, he sing he plays green sleeves for them. And now a very special treat, a book my grandmother used to read to me when I was a kid. This is a very special story. It's called Strummel Peter by Heinrich Hoffman from 1864. 
<laughs> the great tall tailor always comes to little girls that suck their thumbs. Are you listening, Sasha? Yes. Right? And ere they dream when he's about, he takes his great sharp scissors out and then cuts their thumbs clean off. <laughs> what I love about uh, uh, Dwight's perform or the actor's performance here too, is like, he really does play it like he believes, you know, as he would, that this is a sweet moment right like you know reading folk tales to children um but not sort of grasping just how horrifying they are on the other hand i think kids like scary things in ways that i feel like uh parents and adults often don't appreciate like the uh scary stories to tell in the dark books that i loved as a kid or um what's is it richard gory is that his name who's the guy um you know, with those kind of creepy uh, illustrations. Um, I think that's his name. No. Uh, uh, let me see. Who this is on a note of creepy illustrations. Edward Gorey. Edward Gorey. Um, have you ever seen those? Ad. I no. Okay. But they're creepy kids illustrations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like four kids, and and uh, anyway. So I thought that was interesting because the kids are kind of delighted by these. <laughs> these tales in a way it's just back to like the thing about the imagery i think the thing that's most terrifying about this stroll peter is the dead eyes yeah yeah just like it's totally straight faced like so- no expression on the lips just dead eyes and i feel like that's maybe the most terrifying part yeah yeah it it's is interesting like 18 18- Go ahead, go ahead. By Heinrich Hoffman, 1845. And uh, according to my Google research, it is uh, comprised of 10 illustrated and rhymed stories, mostly about children. Each has a clear moral that demonstrates the disastrous consequences of misbehavior in an exaggerated way. Right. So Dwight is a teacher. He's interested in guiding children, but in this way that focuses on crazy disaster that will come of your very minor shortcomings like sucking your thumb this seems important too because the episode ends with dwight and michael singing teach your children yeah Um, which i went and read the lyrics to and i hadn't quite realized that it's like you know parents teach your children but also children teach your parents Hmm. Um, which i feel like is a great metaphor for what you began us with which is to say like as much as we're seeing each of the adults kind of um attempt to teach or raise or guide or interact with children we're also seeing how they adapt to like what they learn from kids yeah Um, uh you know Dwight maybe being the most obvious I guess um but Michael, as we'll see, also learning some things here. But it's interesting yeah. when when Michael says, uh, your Nazi war criminal grandmother, <laughs> which <laughs> I love how they keep developing uh, Dwight's family as a Nazi. And Sasha says, what's a Nazi? And Dwight like is like, Nazi was a fascist movement from the 1930s. Um, and Michael stops him. But I, I actually thought that that was a an interesting contrast between like, do children need to be protected from, uh, you know, history up to a certain point or not? Um, yeah. And Michael and Dwight disagree. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I love how the description he goes into also is so 
clinical feeling like it it feels like he's reading it from an encyclopedia or something yeah 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 <laughs> so interesting but um, yeah so what about stanley i was gonna oh go ahead sorry oh i was just gonna say that it's interesting the way that dwight's child rearing approach is so so what is it it's almost it's very old it seems of a different time and is that time being 1845 <laughs> but the the uh corn husk dolls it's like very i don't know i just associate that with kind of early america like pioneers yeah, yeah. Um, he really wants to take them to a different time and it's just really not successful or persuasive to children they are just dying of boredom until michael comes in question about that so Dwight seems to be the most clear representative of the idea that the way that you were parented is how you will parent mm -hmm. um, do you agree with that do you think that that's true do you think the episode gives us anything to think about why people have the styles of uh oh gosh, that's parenting? A great question that's a great question hmm I don't know I feel like I need to think about that more but it does it does seem like a lot of the parenting style or you know child interaction style comes out of their own personal needs so if it's sort of a need for control like Angela has if for Michael it's a need to be loved and a need to be fun and a need yeah. to, for people to think you're fun yeah and I don't know, Mer like Meredith seems like it's just exhaustion, <laughs> the yeah. kind of exhaustion of having a kid like that. <laughs> I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's an inter It's just one I've thought a lot about because you know I, I don't know how much we've talked about this on the podcast, but I had some <laughs> pretty bad parenting, <laughs> and uh, there were times where. I wanted kids and the fantasy was I'll have kids so I can be the dad that I didn't have. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, I've also definitely not wanted kids because I'm like, I don't want to become the dad that I had. Mm -hmm. And I'm worried, or I have been worried like, Oh, what if I, you know, even, even in the absence of kids, I definitely sometimes I'm like, uh Oh, do I have the, um, what do you call it? You know, I don't know, um, patterns. Am I acting in ways that are similar to the way that my parents acted, which were, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the toxic ones, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, um, and so that's something I've always thought about is the kind of like tension between your, how conscious can you be, uh, as a parent and how, how much do the unconscious patterns that yes. you, you know how much can you actually change right in the in the ways that you relate to people based on either your needs or the ways that you were taught to uh, taught what parenting is i don't know yeah it's just something i'm interested in and so this episode i definitely agree is sort of um seems to be working out something there i mean in dwight's case it's very amusing because it is from another time um so yeah. yeah, and oh, and Michael, I mean, my God, it's like, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's no, we don't know anything about Michael's parents. And so it definitely doesn't link it necessarily to like parents make, make you into themselves. It seems more like, as you're saying, kind of your whole, your whole social being 
gets manifested in the way that you relate to children. So in Pam's case, it's like, I, 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 you know, I want a guy like Jim, you know, or I want a guy to be a, to be a dad. Uh, and I want to be a, a, a parent in the way that he is, you know, easygoing and liked by children. And so I don't know. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about Pam actually. Cause I'm like, her needs are very confusing to me. Um, yeah. But anyway, yeah, I don't know. It's something there are, just say there, there are ways you're right. where like, we don't have a full context on the background and on the parents but it does seem like there are ways that it kind of points to it. And like you're saying, the way that becoming a parent is, I think probably pretty inevitably a reaction in some way to the way that you were raised. And sometimes it's wanting to replicate that. And sometimes it's wanting to really get away from it or you know, some combination of those things right, related right. to different components. But Angela says the way she sets up what she wants out of Dwight is to say that her father was a strict disciplinarian. So she wants that thing. In terms of Michael, he, at one point, I think it's Pam who says, I can't believe his mother dressed him like that. So I think that's one thing that kind of gestures toward what can we gather about the way that he was parented. And I guess it's just from the early Michael that we see on Fundle Bundle. Oh, I, <laughs> I don't want to hear all your thoughts about Fundle Bundle, <laughs> which is maybe the greatest name for a show that I've ever heard. But he's wearing a suit. His hair is all combed and slicked down. And he's the kind of kid where they ask what's his favorite subject at school and he says recess but it really feels like he's saying recess because he knows that that's the cool thing to say right but it really contrasts with his whole appearance yes yes so it feels like there's some if he wants to be fun and loved I don't know. He looks like maybe the small, well-behaved boy that Angela wants. <laughs> That's so brilliant. That's a brilliant point. He does. Um, there's so much to unpack about that whole. It's. I think it it elevates this episode to like something special. I think mm, because the bundle? yeah, the fundal bundle thing is so fucking devastating. <laughs> and funny and it's like I think I really like that I, this is the moment when I or maybe I, I you've made me fall in love with cringe comedy or whatever but like <laughs> it's so heartbreaking mm. and I love that Edward R. Meow is uh is um gets a gets a close-up reaction shot <laughs> of like kind of horror you know and, <laughs> Which in reality makes sort of no sense, right? Like, why would the puppet need to like keep its mouth open in shock? But is just so funny, but also heartbreaking because he doesn't say, yeah, he's basically like, I want to have kids because your children have to love you. And yeah. um, and then they'll be my friend, you know, and then nobody can yeah. not be my friend, which suggests yeah. first that he has no friends. And yeah people don't want to be his friend, which is heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And difficult, I imagine, for a young child to understand why are people not my friend. Yeah. Um, and, uh, oh, that's that's tough. But then also, now it does beg the question of like, yeah, well, what is, what is the model of parenting he has? Because 
if he thinks, you know, is his relationship with his parents such similar, right? Mm. Like you have to be my friend, Mm. not I'm, you're my child and I love you and you're going to have, you know, go out and have other friends, you know, like, does he have a, a super narcissistic um, parent that has turned him into an extension of themselves or something? I don't know. Um, I feel like we could use a whole side branch show that's about Michael's past. Yeah. I just have to say before we get past Edward Hormiao. <laughs> oh my God. I love, yeah. It's, so his reaction after Michael says that, yeah, and it does that close up. <laughs> and his mouth is a, like, his mouth is part of what's communicating his shock. But I think the best thing is his eyes. Yeah. But the fact that he's a puppet means his eyes do not change. His <laughs> eyes have always been like that. But they seem so communicative in that moment. Like the eyes just seem to take on this, I don't know, this ability to communicate. I don't know, what is it? A sort of speechless horror in response, the kind of, I don't know. I just, I have moments in my life where I want to kind of, where I feel like a, a cut to the, Edward Armiao face. (laughs) I just, I think those eyes are so spectacular. There are a lot of jokes that I really love in this episode and in this scene in particular, but one of my favorites is that when Edward Armiao is introduced, um, I believe it's Jim says, oh, that's funny. Um, And Michael is like, yeah, but like you can tell based on the reading of the line that he doesn't know Edward R. Murrow, like that he doesn't get why it's funny. <laughs> At least that was my interpretation. Wait, who's Edward R. Murrow? Edward R. Murrow is like a famous uh, news broadcaster, journalist. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, so I missed that too. <laughs> so I think that that's what's going on there is um, I was trying to find the line where Jim says that's pretty funny. And Michael's like, yeah. And my impression was that like he's not connecting the. Um, why that's funny uh oh got it yeah 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 yeah. Uh, after that too you know after that comes up or when they're talking about chet yes oh <laughs> quickly he all he's always wanting like okay guys pay attention pay attention or you're going to miss it he's described himself as the star the of a star <laughs> but clearly then he has to make sure they're paying attention for that really short segment yeah so that yeah they don't miss it I do relate to that when it's like you want to show somebody something mm-hmm. and then they're like, oh, this reminds me of this other thing. And you're like, shut up. Look at it. <laughs> um, and he's all annoyed because they're more impressed that Chet's dreams came true. I want to be on TV. And I yeah. am on TV. Um, yeah. I fucking love the kids then ask, so did you get married? No. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you have kids? No. Do you have a girlfriend? I do okay. <laughs> And then Jake says, even I have a girlfriend. Yeah. (laughs) And then read Sasha's line at the end of that. So you didn't get to be what you wanted to be. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Isn't that like kind of devastating inside of children where they'll just say the thing that is true and that is brutal and so sad. And Oh, then when Michael turns and he's like, okay, I'm just going to get a piece of this delicious uh, and uh, <laughs> eat it in my office. It is so heartbreaking. And I think Michael's, the kind of Michael arc in this episode 
is fascinating. Yes. Because he goes through so many feelings. Like his relationship with kids develops and changes a lot over the course of the episode. So when it starts, it's really awkward. Yes. He he walks in and he's saying, you know, this isn't a a place for kids. This is like HBO, no limits. And when he introduces himself, he says something like, I'm Michael. And he's questioning, how do I explain this to them? (laughs) And so he uses Superman and he uses Aquaman in this way that's just so stiff and awkward and doesn't work. But then there's the, it, it kind of converts. I was interested in the place where I felt like it switched. And in that, um, Sasha walks in to his office and at first, at first it's, it's got that awkwardness, but it shifts and he starts to connect with her. She gets his train, his train toy, and then he kind of invites her over to play with it on the desk. And it feels like there's just this big transition where I don't, he like, he falls into this different rhythm with kids and sort of figures out how to interact and how actually who he is and the things that he likes are appealing to kids. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a brilliant point because it's actually, it was actually really surprising to me. And I mean, I don't know, we could debate whether this is a fair choice or not, but part of me was like, is it realistic to think that Michael Scott wouldn't um, be immediately excited about children in the workplace? You know, Mm -hmm. I like the way they set it up though, around like he wants to be um, R rated or whatever. And this is a, you know, so it felt in line with his character's desire to be a comedian and whatever. Um, But on the other hand, yeah, he is so kid-like in a lot of ways and his interests are very childlike you know he has this kind of childlike wonder yeah um so i i actually really enjoyed that development um that you're describing where he kind of realizes like oh he can easily relate to children because in many ways he is one um but it's interesting because the episode begins and he and pam are actually kind of on the same page they both she said the episode begins says uh she says i am not great with kids but i want to get better because i'm getting married uh, which, you know, I had some problems with that, um, but whatever. <laughs> um, and then she put out a bunch of candy, like the witch in Hansel and Gretel. And so really quickly, like her attempt to connect is kind of soured by this image of her as as a, as a villain or a monster or whatever. And similarly, like Michael, his first interaction with Stanley's kid is like, oh, you're a, hot, you're a hottie, basically, you know. And oh, it's, oh, yeah. Stop. This is more Stone Cold Fox. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> so gross and awkward. I love that when she says, I'm in eighth grade. <laughs> <laughs> and that so actress was great in this episode. <laughs> she was really funny in her interactions with Ryan when she's like, you don't know jitters? Give me your number so we can text. I was like, oh no. <laughs> but I also like, I thought that that was a realistic thing did mm-hmm. not necessarily like it's not clear that she's flirting but it's not not clear that you know but come on like you know tweens have crushes or you yeah, know yeah. whatever on on the you know and and ryan is like a hottie you know so like it's not unrealistic that she would be interest you know whatever like mm-hmm. whatever um yeah 
And that was why I love that whole dynamic. Cause it's like, <laughs> Ryan's like just trying to keep away from her. <laughs> and anyway, um, but back quickly to the, the sexuality uh, of it at the beginning. So um, Michael comes in and says, Pam, Ms. Beasley, if you're nasty, Janet Jackson, Hey, you have a wardrobe malfunction there. Um, and then she's like, you can't be nasty today because of the, you know, so it was interesting that like, it's, it's, it's this idea of the potential. It's specifically like his sexual joking that has to be squashed and is a threat. Um, and yeah, I was actually wondering if you remember, do you have like memories of that wardrobe malfunction situation with Janet Jackson on the Super Bowl? Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember it. I don't remember. I feel like I remember it kind of vaguely, not a lot of uh, reaction, but there there was the discussion like, was it was it truly a wardrobe malfunction? Was it planned? It was like a little too perfect of a wardrobe malfunction. Right, right. <laughs> And then apparently, like, Justin blamed Janet, and for years, you know, he kind of got off the hook, and only recently it seems like people are like, hey, wait a minute, uh, why does he get to constantly throw women under the bus? Um, but I do remember hearing that the FCC or whatever was, like, fined a ton because of this nudity on television, and people, parents complain, like, about protecting their children and then okay. apparently it's partly what gave rise to the popularity of YouTube. It was like the biggest, really? yeah, it was the most searched clip or something like that on the internet. I always find that fascinating that like new technologies are driven by, you know, basically pornography or the desire to see nudity. <laughs> and like, uh, anyway, I don't know how true that is or not, but it's just interesting this to put this show back in the context of the early 2000s. But yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, so Michael's got, so, he, and he begins then with the really, it's interesting too, because he's got all the inappropriate sexual humor, but then the way that he, he goes up and he's talking to Stanley's daughter, Melissa, is that he first, he starts in the kind of more formal mode in a way where it feels like he doesn't, know how to say what to say or he doesn't know how to interact because he just keeps saying things like too many things back to back he puts them all together so oh yes hello how are you good to see you wow you've really grown up you know what so like the, the thing that you've really grown up is like the standard thing that you say to kids and the standard thing you kind of feel I think when you haven't seen a kid in a long time because of how much they grow and then it's like he's he's trying to kind of say the right things but then he gets pulled from there into his inappropriate sexualizing because then he says you know what don't mind me saying so she is turning into a stone cold fox oh, God. better keep the frat boys away from her and then melissa i'm in eighth grade I'm like yeah. oh stanley she's in middle school <laughs> and then so, like, yeah okay, keep going. yeah he's just he's <laughs> he is bringing his HBO no limits <laughs> at that at that point. I love then that that's like reflected in you know Ryan doesn't sexualize um, uh, what's her name Sasha uh, Melissa Melissa who's Sasha uh, Sasha's uh, Toby's kid Toby's okay um, but uh, what's her Kelly puts the idea in Stanley's head that he is yes. so yes. Stanley yelling at. Um, 
Ryan is definitely one of my favorite office moments probably so far. Oh my gosh, yes. It's As the little interview afterwards. So Ryan's reaction afterward too, when it cuts to him, that Stanley yelled at me and, oh yeah, it's great. <laughs> Stanley yelled at me today. That was one of the most frightening experiences of my life. I can't remember what he says, but some, you know, just the way that he says something like, have you lost your damn mind or something is so. Yes. He says, yeah, boy, have you lost your mind? Cause I'll help you find it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and then he says, um, Jesus could not, Jesus could come through that door and he's not going to help you if you don't stop sniffing after my child. Oh God. Yeah. Sniffing after my child. Oof. Wow. That is so powerful and so vivid. And the accusation of what he's claiming Ryan is doing to be just so creepy. But it is interesting because Ryan is not sexualizing her and he's trying to get away from it, but she is sexualizing him. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, Stanley's fantastic there. But so, oh yeah. I was just going to say one thing I want to go back to with Michael. I might be too too scattered and jumping around here, but before I don't want to miss it. And this is back to when he's in the office with Sasha. And so they start, they're playing with the train and then she gets out his train whistle and he shows her. So he, he blows the whistle. It's one of those big wood whistles. He blows it first to show her how it's done. And then she takes it. He's like, okay, you can try it. And so she takes it and she's blowing it and he just smoothly jumps into playing with her. And he says, next stop, Kamanga, which I don't know why it is one of my favorite things. That's one of my favorite, most memorable office moments. Did you have a reaction to that? I did. And I, well, I thought what was especially charming and I put it in my notes to talk to you about was the little laugh he does after he says it. It's, I, it's like one of the signature Michael Scott um, details is the way he kind of, we've talked about it before. It's like, he kind of is choking on a laugh or something. It's like a, it's a guffaw. It's a chuckle snort or something, you know, I can't even produce it, but he does it after he gets a laugh from her about that. And I found that so endearing. Um, So endearing. And I think it's, catches him by it's like a laugh that sort of catches him by surprise yeah yeah and she's laughing with him and it is just so darling yeah i i found out too so i looked that up and most of the stuff that comes up is just when you search kookamonga it's just references to this episode but for some reason i don't like to read those yeah so what did like several several things down though i found out that it was it's from comes from mel blanc who or mel blanc or blank i'm not sure which one who was a 1940s voice actor. And it really does have that kind of sound. He actually did a lot of Looney Tunes voices. Um, Interesting. But I think he has this, I don't know if it's a, a character or what, but I found a recording and he is a train announcer in this who, who is like calling out the stops. And one of them is Coop Kalmanga. And he kind of says it like mm-hmm. that, like Michael does. So it was interesting, the thing that Michael is kind of channeling there too. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, I wanted to talk about Pam a little bit more and Jim. Um, Before we get to Pam and Jim, Uh can we talk about one more Michael thing? Yeah, sure. (laughs) I'm obsessed with Michael in this episode. And I just want to hold, so we're definitely coming to Pam and Jim, but 
here's my question. In the kids, so we talked about the part where it's devastating, but before that, in the kids, do you think Michael finds his best comedic audience? Because well, that's interesting. Yeah. The thing where he walks, you know, where he's stopping Dwight and he says, I think the first thing he says, does anybody like Dane Cook? Yeah. <laughs> and so he kind of gets into performing for them. Yeah. So I, I don't know. He's always looking for this audience. He's always looking to be this comedian. And I don't know. Do you think he finds something of that comedic, comedic audience in the kids? I definitely think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I think, yeah, part of that, part of what makes that line so funny is clearly, you know, probably the office writers think Dane Cook sucks, uh, <laughs> or at least he's a, you know, a kind of like mainstream, uh-huh. uh, uh, whatever, um, middle brow kind of comedian. That's and, very cool in comedy kind of. Right. And so it's interesting that, um, yeah, I don't know, that they're drawing a parallel between Michael Scott's kind of way of doing comedy and Dane Cook's and that both would appeal to children. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. that is both like an ironic thing and an endearing thing. Um, yeah. And it's what interesting, he has the audience until he loses them. Like he loses them when he shows the show. It's like he he tries too hard. He goes too far. Is he um, then, is his story here actually paralleling Dane Cook? Because didn't Dane Cook kind of have, find a lot of success and then there was this sort of turn against him. Yeah, I think so. I think wasn't he accused of stealing jokes or doing something unethical? I can't remember. Uh, I don't know. And I, I don't remember why, but yeah, him just being this person who kind of had this huge success and rise. Yeah. And then, cause I feel like a lot of the ways that he's talked about is just that he's like, that it's kind of lame and uncool yeah. right. comedy, but he came from like, like he got, he got way up there. He came from kind of a huge rise. And so it feels like Michael actually has this massive rise as a comedian once it kind of clicks with his audience. Oh, that's I've, interesting. I've heard comedians talk about this and about the feeling. And sometimes it's like the first, the first time they have that feeling of performing and really making people laugh. Yeah. And it being just this incredible thing that you then chase after and so it feels like michael it starts to click how to entertain the kids and how to have this great audience and so i feel like he has this sort of rise narrative that then crashes mm. and he recovers i guess with the song at the end but the song at the end yeah. is i don't know strange it's a strange it's a very different mode <laughs> yeah because it's not the comedian and it's not it's not I don't know. Yeah, there's something odd about that, but Michael. Though I will say, I so, and he gets into his kind of falsetto singing there, and his his face is just so wonderful when he's singing at the end. He's got his leg up on the chair. He's playing the tambourine because apparently he owns a guitar but doesn't know how to play it, and he just looks like he's having such a great time, and it's so fun to see that. Um, just to say another thing about Michael's psychology here, it is interesting first that he says, it's not children, it's not that children make me uncomfortable. It's just that why be a dad when you can be a fun uncle? I've never heard yeah. of anyone rebelling against their fun uncle. 
<laughs> and I thought was interesting there too, is like here again, it's like the father as disciplinarian and not, he does not want to be a boss who people don't like. He doesn't want to yeah. be a dad that people don't like. And, um, you know, you need rules and boundaries. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> like that's what parents and bosses, I guess, provide. Mm -hmm. um, and he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to do either of those. He wants to be like the kids and be liked by the kids. Um, but then he says later, and it made me wonder where he heard this, but he said something like, I don't know why people say it's so hard to be a parent. Um, <laughs> and I thought that was, oh yeah, I don't get why parents are always complaining about how tough it is to raise kids. You choke around with them, give them pizza, give them candy, let them live their lives. They're adults for God's sake. <laughs> Which I thought was very charming and funny, you know, in some ways it's actually similar to what Jim is trying to do. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause Jim like basically treats the kid like an adult in a way or the, and that he is like a kid, like he blurs the boundaries. Yeah. Um, but there's, that's different than, than what Michael is describing here, which is like endless adulthood for children. And um yeah, it made me wonder if his parents complained about that, you know, that it's tough to raise kids. Like, I was like, what parents is, is he listening to? Mm -hmm. um, anyway, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that brings us, I cut you off before on the Pam and Jim because I am so far into Michael, but there's a lot to talk about there too. So where where did you want to take us? I think you were starting with Jim or Jim. Well, I guess it was just, so the episode is framed by Pam wanting to get better at being with kids. By yeah. the end, she fails multiple times, um, uh, including with um, Stanley's daughter. <laughs> and uh, uh, by the end, she connects with the same child that Roy connects with, right? Mm -hmm. um, but when Roy is playing with Jake, she is definitely, it's definitely meant to be a contrast to what she would like, which is the way Jim does. And so part of me wanted to ask you, like, why? Like, why is the way that Roy relates to Jake bad? And the way that Jim relates to the, uh, is it Sasha? No. Who is it that uh, he? Abby. Abby, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> that he, why is Jim's way better? Um, but what does it mean that Pam herself can only relate to the same child that, that Roy can? Um, oh, that's really interesting, actually. So I would, I don't know. I think I would ask if Roy's way of relating is bad like it's a uh, or if she thinks it's bad because I feel like Pam's feelings in this are kind of complicated yeah because Roy's sort of roughhousing approach is another I don't know kind of cute way of relating to kid like he's really having a good time with him yeah he's really having fun with him which I think is I don't know there's something kind of nice about that the way though I was paying attention to the way that Pam looks at both of these interactions so we would think that um, we would think that Jim's way of interacting is so heartwarming. But both when she looks after she's looking at Roy in the conference room and as she turns away and when she's looking at Jim, when he first starts talking to Abby about the book and she's responding to him well, in both of those times, there are moments where she kind of turns away. She just has this sort of sadness on her face because it's working so well for them and seems like it's coming so naturally to them and it isn't to her. Mm. And she wants it so bad. She wants them 
to like her. And so I feel like in, I feel like both Jim and Roy, there's something kind of, I don't know, potential. I'd say this is actually where I take issue with the, the summary that Pam takes note of Jim's way of kids. I guess it's kind of, um, I think the takes note of it leads us to think it's like, ooh, that's a nice way of interacting with kids. But I, I felt like it hurt. I felt like it was painful for her. Mm. I mean, I guess too, there's this like cultural expectation that women are just supposed to be inherently nurturing and good with children. Yeah. I sort of took issue with the Pam. I mean, this is her character to an extent, but it's also like, you know, I'm getting married, so I need to figure out how to be with kids. It's like, you don't have to have kids. Like, yeah, those are such uh, an automatic package. Yeah. Sort of the, the way that we think about it, the getting married. And as we see with Kelly too, that, right. That it means that for her having fun means getting married and having babies, that that's like a package deal. Yeah. And I guess this also builds on the Jan episode, right? Where it's like, what, what do you want? What is, um, and what's at stake in that or something. Um, but yeah. yeah, anyway, I love that idea that like, maybe it's not only or primarily even about assessing the ways or the types of relating, mm-hmm. um, but uh, uh, feeling a kind of envy or melancholy that she can't do it. I guess what changes, I'm trying to think why she fails earlier, um, but why she succeeds with Jake is basically appeals to his interests, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's this destructive little monster and so she knows to be like hey like check out this shredder isn't that cool Um, (laughs) the shredder does connect with him really well on this watch I wondered I became a little bit more skeptical of Jake in this interaction and I wanted to know was he hitting on her oh what because the way that he approached her desk, he kind of very gently, very politely asks about the candy. Is it okay if I take one? And he has this sort of sweet face, like he's a small, well-behaved boy or something like uh, like Angela wants. Right. And it just did not seem in line with... Um, any of his other behavior. So he says, is it okay if I take one? And Pam says, sure. And he says, thank you. She says, you're welcome. He asks, is your job hard? And there's just the way he's like showing interest in her, the kind of tone that he adopts with her. It just, it felt so out of the way that he has been behaving. So I kind of felt like, you know, and you know, he said to Michael, even I have a girlfriend. So I, I sort of felt like Pam might have been a little bit of a, a conquest for him. And I think shredding is a perfect, turned out to be a really perfect thing for him that he would probably really like. But I don't know. Is this, is this a crazy reading? What's your, no. what's your take on this? I had not <laughs> thought about it that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, I want to say you're canceled. And then secondly, I want to say... <laughs> Um, no, I think that that's a, I, re- I want to go back and rewatch it because I definitely am open to that reading. It didn't occur to me. Um, but I think I read it in the context of, uh, the last time we see Jake before this is 
Dwight's calling him a horrible little latchkey kid. So, oh, that's a great point. So I read it as yeah. like we're meant to take it that he is has now been appropriately disciplined and as a consequence is going to be polite. Yeah. I don't really buy that. Like realistically, I, that does not seem realistic because partly because he whines and it's like Meredith. So even in that instance, it's not like he says, mom, Mm -hmm. it's not as if, you know, uh, and I don't know that we've seen enough of his interactions with other people besides Mr. Poop uh, to determine like, how is he interacting with like, women for example so yeah i don't throw when when michael is talking to meredith he's like throwing right i don't know it was a gumdrops or something like repeatedly at michael's head he's so annoying there (laughs) yeah so i'm totally down with the potential reading that he's he's like not you know not actually well-intentioned here or contrite (laughs) um and then he has other motives. Uh, he's been kind uh, of beaten down by by Dwight there, so maybe it has kind of chastened him and shamed him, which is not to say that long term that's gonna work, but that yeah, he has been kind of kind of cut down there. Jake does bring up something I just wanted to read into the record, uh, so to speak. I just wanted to mention this because. I, you know, one idea I had for our conversation was to talk about the entire concept of take your daughter to work day. Um, Oh, yeah. But I just really enjoyed first how the episode complicates it uh, gender wise. So Mm. Meredith gets permission to bring Jake. There's nothing about like, why was this established or who established it? But we know that it's a convention of workplaces to have your like take your daughter to work. And then I guess take your child to work. It would be really maybe for revisions and regrets. I'll like look into the history of this. Did it start out being take your child and then they expanded it to take your daughter to combat sexism or was it always this paternalistic? Anyway, I like that Jake is there. And I also like that Kevin's like girlfriend's daughter is there. Right. So it's not necessarily your um, biological daughter per se. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I just appreciated the episode's subtle complication of the very idea of this kind of event. Yeah, um, yeah. But it did beg the question for me, kind of like, yeah, what is it supposed to be? I think it's mm-hmm. supposed to be like, you go and you learn what people's jobs are like or something, what yeah. what mommy and daddy do at, at work, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, it must have started out with like, is the your meant to be men taking their daughter, right? Because yeah. if, if primarily men were expected to be the breadwinners and being in the workplace, I, I, mm-hmm. I'm going to stop speculating. We will, we'll do some research listeners and find out next time. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm making a note that I can text you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you said you do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, you can get the, at the history of take your daughter to work day, but I do feel like you're right, that it, makes sense as sort of a response to sexism and a response to the expectation that girls don't belong in the workplace. And so this is probably to kind of, you know, encourage them to see working life and that kind of thing. But so many of the shots of them are just of boredom when they're sitting with their parents. Like there's nothing (laughs) in an, actually in an office job like this, where they're mostly working on their computer, there's kind of nothing to see. 
Yeah, and and maybe that's like the other, while watching Edward R. Meow ask about what do you want to be when you grow up, that's partly sad because it's Michael, but like the other unstated thing is like nobody says, I really want to grow up to sell paper or be a middle manager. Like that's yeah. nobody's dream as a child. I don't know that we should fetishize the dreams of children, uh-huh. um, <laughs> but uh, that struck me too. And I love the scene. That's another of my favorite. I think it's clever writing when Michael is trying to explain to them their job. This is where the magic happens. Let me show you. See all this? That's paper. You know, you know. <laughs> they're like, so you cut in, uh, the paper and dye it? And he's like, no. No, uh, that's from a paper manufacturer. And Abby's like, that's not fair. Well, you need somebody in the middle to facilitate. Jake's like, you're just a middleman. I'm not just a middle man. Um, And Melissa says, wait, why doesn't the sawmill just sell the paper directly to people? And Michael says, you're describing Office Depot and they're kind of running us out of business. What I loved about that first was, um, you know, the, the attempt to make kids interested in what they do doesn't work, but also kids are like smart enough to see that like capitalism is bullshit <laughs> or at least this structure of it is like kind of unnecessary and they're critical. They're questioning. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like when they're outside of the logic of it, they really can question the logic of it. Like they're coming at it with a fresh view that, that puts that into question. And then he tries to distract them with Creed who wants to show them four toes and they want to see it. And he's like, and, you know, Michael stops that, which I thought was interesting. It's like, no, kids are into it. Like, what's, <laughs> why? And I was like, is Michael trying to distract them because he genuinely thinks that's gross? Children shouldn't be exposed to it. Or is he distracting them because he doesn't want to lose the attention? You know, like he's jealous that they're interested. I don't know. But yeah. I love that Creed says, um, uh, the hair covers it mostly. <laughs> I don't know if you caught that. <laughs> oh my God, I did not catch Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, what you, you know, he's like, no, no, it's going to be fine to see it because the hair covers it. <laughs> Gross. Yikes. Totally, totally missed that little tidbit. But yeah, you said the, the question of what, it seems like that's a big question that kind of circulates is what should kids be exposed to and not exposed to here? Right. So are we nearing our Dundee time? We're, we're nearing the Dundee time. I just have two more small thoughts that I feel like I need to get out. Okay. First of all, I love when uh, Michael decides that he wants to get the bundle bundle tape. So he sends Ryan to his <laughs> mom's house in Dixon city and says that if she's at the pool, he should climb into the window and get over <laughs> the basement and find it or something. So funny, but just a little, little <laughs> bit of context. I looked it up. And Scranton is only 12 to 14 minutes away from Dixon City. Okay. So it's not a huge ask in terms of distance. Interesting. It's, it's much closer than Boston Market was. <laughs> <laughs> I um, wonder how often he sees his mom if she's that, that close. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. She is close. And she's been on the phone with him sometimes, you know. Yeah. When he burns his foot. So she's, she's involved in some way. Right. The other thing was, I just want to say that maybe this, in leading up to our dundies, this is like, the anti-Dundee and the person who I really took issue with in this episode. And that was Jim because Jim, this was specifically in his interaction with Abby about the book that she's reading. And Uh. in some ways it's so cute and so sweet that he knows about this book, that he can talk to her about it. 
that he asks, great question, like, would you rather sleep in the Met or the aquarium? He just is interacting with her so well there. But I felt like he was kind of flaunting it, his ability to connect. Um, because this was right after Pam fails. Pam asks her if she wants to yeah. join in the shredder. She fails. And so then Jim just swoops in. Is this, is it applicable, the thing that younger people say about dunking on someone? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? That yeah, yeah. If, if this is appropriate use of it, I feel like he was just dunking on Pam here. I love this. I'm I'm thinking maybe I misread some of the episode as like I love your point that it's like she's looking because I kept looking at her looking at Jim as like a potential dad hmm. for her children. And maybe that's like um a sexist reading <laughs> or potentially no. at the very least a it's one reading, but you know, yeah. I think that, that might be set up a, a bit by the the romance plot, you know. Uh -huh. Um but I think you're much more right that like the goal here is like, she straight up says, I want one of these kids to like me. That's the goal of the episode. And mm -hmm. so her look, as you said, at her, at him and the others is this kind of melancholy, like, why can't I do this? And it did strike me in my memory. I don't know if I'd seen this episode or not, but what I thought was going to happen was he connects with this girl and then tries to draw Pam in and then she fucks mm -hmm. it up or something. But he does not make any effort to draw her in, which sucks because he knows that she wants this, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, I thought that that, yeah, I think he is, whether consciously or not, he is kind of like um, flaunting it or at least not yeah. not being very um, generous in drawing her in to help. Um, yeah, I feel like- Her wingman for children. Okay, <laughs> that sounds bad. <laughs> what I meant. Not what you meant. Now we're both canceled. I feel like I feel like both of those readings are in there because I think that that the desire and melancholy in those ways can so both be happening. I will say I I uh, ran this by Dan. I mentioned my negative feeling about Jim here, and he had a good counter point, and that was that. Pam is constantly showing her engagement and her coming marriage, and that is constantly hurting Jim. So, like, oh, Jim show his great ability to connect with children. Interesting. So, like, how can I, you know, can I be asking Jim not to do what he does well when he is constantly facing all of her marriage talk and wedding planning and love of Roy and all of that. That's an interesting point. Um, and it does go to the point that Jim also has a date, I guess, this episode. I couldn't remember. Does Pam know that's what he's leaving early to go do or not? I don't, I didn't get the impression that there was ever a moment where she heard about it, but I can't Good remember. question. Was she, I guess, was she sitting at her desk when, um, when Kevin and Abby invited him over for dinner and right. he said, actually, I have a date. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I guess because she was in that shot. Yeah, was she there and did she overhear it? Yeah. But that's who I didn't like. Let's get to who we did like. <laughs> Tyler, will you start us off with Dundies for the day? Absolutely. I have a Dundee to give uh, and I'm very excited to give it because as you, Megan, know, and perhaps some of our longtime listeners remember, 
I'm a Toby Stan and Toby's yes. going to get my Dundee of the week. Oh, uh, yes. For the listener award. Um, and there are two moments that I thought, and we didn't really talk about Toby, but he uh-huh. is kind of the like default involved sweet parent. Um, so I love that he tries to involve his daughter in the, um, what do you call it? The uh, party planning thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that he lets Michael um, put her, you know, get her in the car and say goodbye and all that. You know, he's he's very yeah. sweet to a person who has been, you know, very rude to him. And then he can tell that Michael's upset and goes and and um, it's just so freaking funny to the way that he's like, it's like, do you think it's too late? And he's like, well, you need a girlfriend first or whatever. But <laughs> I just thought the way that he um, attempts to be kind to somebody yeah. in this yeah. episode was very, very, very endearing, even if he is also like, I just love the way the actor plays it as he's so wormy and like uncomfortable to watch. And he's, he's, he's like his shyness or whatever he is. I don't know. I didn't even know how to describe his personality. Like it's not as if like his interactions with Michael are totally pure and genuine either. Right. Yeah. Um, but I just thought it was really sweet the way he um, listened and in, 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 in effect enables Michael to, um, become the kind of uh, parental figure he would like to be mm-hmm. and enables him to, to even talk out his desire to transition from quote unquote notches on his bedpost to, um, <laughs> to uh, searching for a partner that he can, you know, build a family with. So here's to you, Toby, oh. even though Michael says you have to do this because you're in human resources. And he's like, yeah, that's true. But still, <laughs> that's my choice. That's a great one. I'm so glad that this got Toby in there. One thing I love in that conversation is when Michael's asking if he can have a kid and Toby keeps says things like maybe a foster parent and Michael yeah. says, or biologically. And Toby just says, somehow. Somehow. <laughs> <laughs> that really means a lot to me. <laughs> Michael will just seize on the smallest thing there. That's a great one. Okay, I struggled a little bit with who I wanted to give a Dundee to this week. Um, I am going to do a runner-up and I'm going to do a winner. I am going to give the Longing Eyes Award to Pam. Mm. I could just, like, just following her eyes through this episode, and this is a testament to the acting, of course, but her eyes, her expressions on her face quietly not saying anything were just really incredible and I felt like expressed a lot my top award my dundee for the best kid goes to Sasha Uh. I loved Sasha I thought she was so good she was so sweet and her friendship with Michael was just beautiful I just loved it and um I I felt that she deserved to be recognized excellent I love it well it's going to be very interesting next week uh because someone has a birthday Mm -hmm. and it's Michael's birthday it is Michael's birthday do you consider birthday episodes holiday episodes I don't actually I don't um because I think it's uh, not about a set of, yeah, it's like not about a set of cultural yeah. touchstones. Although I guess birthdays are cultural touchstones, but 
I don't know. I tend to think of a birthday party as more of a individualist, like a representation of the individual rather than a, a ritual in its own right. But in the office, however, maybe it is very ritualized. So it'll be interesting to see. Find out. Um, especially if we get to see any other birthday episodes going forward. So, um, well, a quick reminder to everybody to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, uh, which I've been using the Twitter a little more regularly. So, uh, so check us out there and, um, yeah, I think that's it. Look forward to next time. All right. Thanks for listening.